0: Matthew chapter 5, beginning to read in verse 33. <clears throat> Matthew five thirty-three. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thine head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. You may be seated. Bless you, dear. For those of you who are regular here, you are aware that we've been. Uh, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, preaching a number of uh, messages on this wonderful passage of scripture. And the title of the sermon on the, the previous portion of this passage was One Rotten Apple. Now I became aware that it seemed that some of the Kaufmans were concerned that I was giving apples a bad label. So hopefully the title of today's sermon will help to rectify that a little bit and counteract any damage that was done. So while the text of our passage is from Matthew 5, the title is taken from Proverbs 25, verse 11, where it says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pitchers of silver. And as I was preparing this, one of my children noticed this slide and told me that they remember, I guess, a number of years ago when Norman preached on this verse. And he promised an apple to any child that would come to him after the message and quote the verse to him. And my child remembered that they really wanted an apple, but they were just too bashful to go and quote the verse. Well, I don't have any apples to pass out this morning, but if you learn to use your words wisely, if we learn to use our words wisely, we can carry these apples of gold with us wherever we go. Our text from Matthew 5 specifically addresses swearing, and uh, we want to look at that. I may expand the subject a bit to include some other teaching from the Bible that pertains to the Christian speech, uh, especially towards the end of the message. So the subject we're looking at is the speech of the Christian, certain aspects of the speech of the Christian, and specifically speech that is appropriate for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The theme or one of the themes of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven and citizenship in the kingdom of heaven and behavior that is appropriate for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So this morning we will be looking specifically at speech that is appropriate for citizens of the kingdom of heaven. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. What are words that are fitly spoken? What type of words are suitable for kingdom citizens or followers of Christ? So moving into this passage, looking at the first verse, verse 33, Jesus starts out again by saying, Ye have heard that it has been said. Ye have heard that it has been said. And then he goes on, well, what did you hear? Ye have heard... Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. This phrase may be a phrase that some of us have misunderstood. In fact, I I feel that I have misunderstood this phrase. What What do the words forswear thyself mean? Now, I was under the impression that this verse is saying that you should not swear by yourself but rather perform unto the Lord your nose. So the emphasis or the contrast being on yourself versus the Lord. So you should not swear by yourself. You know, some people might say, as surely as I live, or as surely as I'm standing here, and so forth. But I believe the emphasis in this verse is not by who or what you're swearing. The emphasis is on whether or not you perform that which you have committed yourself to do. This word for swear actually means to falsely swear. Forswear means to falsely swear. So to forswear yourself means to make a liar of oneself. It has the idea of committing perjury or lying under oath, of failing to do that which you are committing to do. So my tendency would have been to read this verse with accent on thyself, And on the Lord, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I think the accent is actually on the words forswear and perform. Thou shalt not forswear or falsely swear, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. You shall perform that which you have committed yourself to do. Now, Jesus is saying here, you have heard, thou shalt not falsely swear. In other words, he's saying, you already know this. You already know that you are supposed to keep your word. You are not supposed to swear falsely. Basically, what he's saying is this much, I don't need to tell you. You already have heard this. You already know that you are expected to keep your word. The Old Testament has a number of passages and verses that make it quite clear that you are responsible to do that which you have committed to doing. I'll put several of those verses up here. Leviticus 19, verses 11 and 12. Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another, and ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Ye shall not swear falsely is another way of saying thou shalt not forswear thyself. Jesus is saying, this is clear. You've heard this. Another verse in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Jesus was saying, you already know this. You've already heard this. It's been clear. Another verse, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. When thou vowest to vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. So these are just some verses that Jesus is saying, you have heard this, you know this, you're familiar with this, you already know this. But now that brings us to a question. As we apply this passage to our lives, as we look at our own lives, do I keep my vows? Do we keep our vows? Are we As good as our word. Are you a man of your word? Are you a woman of your word? When you tell someone something, can they count on you to fulfill that which you have promised? Jesus is saying, you know that this is expected of you. If you make an appointment, do you keep it? If you promise to be somewhere at six o'clock, are you there at six o'clock? If you promise to pray for someone, do you pray for them? Or is it just a convenient thing to say, well, I'm praying for you and we forget about it. Are we as good as our word? If you promise your employer a full day's work, do you give your employer a full day's work? For us as parents, if we promise our children something special, can they count on receiving it? Do we perform that which we promise? I gave some examples from our personal life. What about on our marriage, marriage life? On the day that you were married, that you the day of your wedding, you made some vows. You vowed to love and cherish your spouse in sickness and in health and in prosperity and in adversity. You vowed to exercise patience, kindness, and forbearance, and to live together in peace. How's it going? Are you keeping your vows? Are you living together in peace? Are you exercising patience and kindness and forbearance? Furthermore, you vowed to keep yourself only for your spouse as long as you both shall live. Are we keeping those vows? Are we performing to the Lord? What we have committed ourselves to do. Or do we find that as time goes on, we allow some other things to maybe come into our life and we begin giving ourselves to other things. And these other interests may not necessarily be other people. It could be things or pursuits that are coming between us and our spouse. So are you performing unto the Lord that which you have promised? Another area is church life. When you become a member of the church, you make certain vows. On your baptism day, you made vows or will be making vows. Or for some of you, when you're taken in uh, later on in life, again, some of the questions you may be asked either at your baptism or when you're taken in, do you promise by the grace of God and the aid of the Holy Spirit to submit yourself to the church, to the brotherhood? Do you commit yourself to support the Brotherhood Agreements. Now I'm not here to preach the Brotherhood Agreements this morning. That should not be necessary. Jesus would say, You already know that's what's expected. You know and understand that you're responsible before God to keep that which you have promised. Jesus says, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, thou shalt not falsely promise these things, but you shall perform unto the Lord. That which you have committed yourself to do. Jesus says, "You have heard this this much you already know. Let's move on to the next verses, verses 33 to, or 34 to 36. Jesus now says, "But I say unto you, I say unto you, swear not at all." And we looked at the definition of forswear, which means to falsely swear. What does it mean to swear? Now, in our modern times, there's basically two ways in which we use this word. There may be um, some additional ways, but they basically fall into two categories. One is, is, uh, simply means to, to swear with an oath or to declare with an oath. For example, if you would be asked to testify in court... You might be asked, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? You know, this is a a declaration under oath. That is, is swearing. Or along with that, certain positions, politicians, officers, and so forth, are sworn into office. Where under oath, they declare that they will perform the responsibilities of that office. So one definition of swear is to declare with an oath. And of course, the other definition of swearing is using offensive language. And that offensive language could include obscenity, where a person uses vulgar words. It can also include profanity, where he uses God's name in a derogatory or a meaningless way. Now, both of these types of swearing can fall under the category of using God's name in vain, which is forbidden in the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I believe that if you promise to do something, if you commit to do something before God, or as many people would swear before God, as it were, to do something, and then you fail to do that, you are using God's name in a vain way. You are invoking his name for something that you do not complete, you do not fulfill. And that's using his name in a vain way. Now, in practice, the Jewish people recognized the holiness of God's name. They recognized that God's name was holy and they were very careful about how they used God's name. In fact, many times they chose to avoid saying his name just to make sure that they were not using it in an inappropriate way or in a way that could hold them accountable, a way that would bring judgment. And it seems that there was this idea among the Jewish circles that if you swore by using God's name, you were held absolutely accountable for that oath. So there was this idea that if they would utter an oath without using God's name then they would not be held accountable. They were off the hook, as it were. So what some people would do, they might swear by something that sounded holy, get as close to God's name as possible without using his name. So they might swear by heaven rather than swearing by God or by Jerusalem, a holy city, or something like that. And then they would comfort themselves. Well, since I did not swear by God, I'm really not bound to this oath so I can do what I please. That seemed to be a practice among some of those people. Now, Jesus comes along and he says, swear not at all. And he says, neither by heaven. He not only says, don't only swear. He's not only saying, do not swear using God, but he's saying, don't even swear using heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even your head. Jesus is saying, swear not at all. He's saying, certainly you should not be committing yourself to something or uttering an oath in such a way that you think you can wiggle out of it simply because of the wording that was used. That seems to be the work of politicians and lawyers, not the work of kingdom citizens. Jesus is saying that should have no place in your life, in your lives, in your vocabulary, to promise something in such a way that you're giving the impression and yet legally or morally you think you can wiggle your way out of it. Furthermore, when Jesus says, Swear not at all, neither by heaven nor by earth, nor by Jerusalem, nor by your head, he points out that heaven and earth are really the residing place of God, where God resides. And furthermore, neither Jerusalem nor even our heads would exist apart from the creation of God, from God and his creation. So anything you might swear by is ultimately swearing by the power of God. So it ultimately comes back to God. And what Jesus is saying, just because you substitute one word for another does not mean that you are any less accountable or any less responsible. Now you might think that this isn't very applicable for us today because we're not going around swearing by Jerusalem or swearing by heaven. But this application of substitution, of substituting one word for another, Jesus says it's the thought that counts. And that is very pertinent for us today because it is something that I hear all too frequently even among our circles, this idea of substituting terms. There's a word. Uh, the, the the practice of doing this is referred to as euphemism. Euphemism is simply when you want to make a statement instead of using a vulgar or a, um, a offensive word, you substitute it with a word that is less offensive, but you really mean the same thing. And there are certain vulgar terms that most of us would not consider using. But there are other words that our society has used to replace those words that are in our vocabulary, that are in our expressions. And I think we need to be careful with that. Jesus is saying, it's not a certain word that you say that defiles you, but it's your motivation, your drive, or your, um, your purpose behind that. And Jesus is saying, you're just as accountable. So let us be careful about our speech and the words we use and the connotations they have and what they may mean. Furthermore, Jesus is saying, Swear not at all, because really, you cannot determine the outcome one way or another. You might think you can, but you can't even decide if the hairs in your head grow out white or black. So what power do you think you really have? How do you think you can determine what is going to happen tomorrow? James gives further comment on this idea in his epistle when he says, Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and buy and sell, continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be in tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, If the Lord will. We shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. You see, when you declare that you are going to do something, a person who swears they are going to do something, basically they are boasting of their ability to perform something. And James is saying, it's really in God's control. It's not in your control. Our approach, rather than to swear, is to say, well, if God's will, if it's God's will, I will do this. Or if God enables me or God helps me, I will do this. Moving on to verse 37. Let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. (coughs) Jesus is kind of summarizing what he's saying here, bringing it together by saying, let your communication be yay, yay, nay, nay. Nothing more, nothing less. There's three applications I'd like to look at this, this um, brief and to the point response. First of all, let your words be meaningful. Do you mean what you say? Your yes should mean yes, and your no should mean no. For citizens of the heavenly kingdom, there is or should be no reason for the swearing of oaths. If you say yes, it means yes. Are you as good as your word? And is your word as good as anyone's oath? James says it this way, but let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. Let your words be meaningful. You don't need to go into great lengths to try to prove something. Along with that, let your words be few. Yay, yay, nay, nay, shorten to the point. What is necessary to get the point across and nothing more. Someone has once said, it is better to keep your mouth shut and appear foolish than to open it and remove all doubt. Those words some people attribute to Abraham Lincoln, although that can't be proven, although it does seem like Abraham Lincoln put that idea to practice in his lifestyle. Now, as you study history, you recall we are aware that Abraham Lincoln traveled from Washington, D.C. to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania on the day before the dedication of the National Cemetery in Gettysburg. And it's reported that on the evening before the dedication, a crowd of people gathered outside the hotel where Abraham Lincoln was residing. And they were insisting that he appear on the street to give them an impromptu speech. So Abraham Lincoln politely responded to their demands. He appeared, and this is basically what he told them. I appear before you, fellow citizens, merely to thank you for this compliment of asking me to appear. I do not appear before you for the purpose of making a speech. In my position, it is somewhat important that I should not say any foolish things. It very often happens that the only way to avoid this is to say nothing at all. Believing that is my present condition this evening, I must beg of you to excuse me from addressing you further. And with that, he returned to his room. I think some modern day politicians could take a lesson. The next day, Edward Everett, who was invited to be the main speaker and was known for his eloquent speeches, spoke for two hours at the dedication of this cemetery. Afterwards, Lincoln was asked to make a few comments. And he spoke for less than two minutes. And I doubt if there's anyone here that can quote even one sentence from anything that Edward Everett said that day. But I'm guessing that almost all of you could quote portions of what Abraham Lincoln said. And there's probably some of you here that could quote his entire speech. Those few words spoken by Lincoln went on to become the most quoted, most memorized piece of oratory in American history. And the day after the dedication, Edward Everett wrote a letter to Abraham Lincoln in which he said, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes." And then he went on to say, my son and my daughter concur in this judgment, which I thought was an interesting observation. The point is, you do not need to talk nonstop in order to get your point across. I think Jesus was encouraging us to let our words be fuel. And again, there are a number of verses in the Bible that emphasize this. Proverbs 10, verse 19, In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Proverbs 17, 28, Even a fool when he holdeth his peace is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, More words from a wise man. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. And in the following verse, a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. Let your words be few. Many times, the more a person sp- speaks, the less he has to say, or the more he talks, the less substance there is in what he says. A week or two ago, I was walking through a woods, and as I was walking through the woods, I was approaching a small creek that I wanted to cross. And as I neared it, just over to my left a little bit, I could hear the water gurgling from that direction. Knowing that I wanted to cross the creek, I headed to that point. And why did I do that? Because I knew that it would likely be a shallow spot in the creek. And it proved to be a very easy place to cross. You see, water that runs deep does not make a lot of noise. But at a shallow point where water runs over the rocks, the place where it makes the most noise is where it runs the shallowest. And sometimes for us as people, it's the same way. The people... Or when we make the most noise is when our words are the shallowest. Now, language is a gift from God, and God intends us to use it. I'm not saying we should just stop talking, but we need to de- determine to use our words wisely. Jesus was very concise let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay. There's really not that much more that is necessary. But it is a gift from God. And we have that verse early. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. So words can be beautiful. They can be wonderful. They can be effective. They can be dramatic. So the question is, how do I know when to use them? Or how do I know when to keep quiet? Ecclesiastes 3.7 says there is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. So how do we know? I'd like to point out four times when it is best to remain silent. And this, again, is verses from Scripture. First of all, when you don't have all the facts, when you really don't know what you're talking about, Proverbs 18:13 says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame to him. So when you do not have all the facts, it's a good time to keep silent. Or... When your intent is to damage someone's reputation. Proverbs 16, 27. An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and in his lips there is as a burning fire. Not an apple of gold, but burning fire. Another time when you're tempted to joke about sin or something that is evil. Proverbs fourteen nine: Fools make a mock at sin, but among the righteous there is favor. And another time... That is good to keep silent is when we should be working. Proverbs 14 23, and all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. That word means p- poverty if you stand around talking when you should be working. Well, we are talking about keeping our words few. I'm guessing maybe we're at the point in the sermon where some of you are wishing the preacher would keep his words few. So let's move on to the next point. Let your words be sweet. Jesus said, let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. Let your words be sweet. Sometimes when we disagree with someone, we tend to become pretty fluent about it. And we try to make our point. And we want that person to see all angles of our position, from all perspectives. And sometimes the more we talk, the less sweet our words become. If we keep our response short, we can avoid words that we may regret later. So to tell if our words are sweet, we need to put them through the apple test. I have an acronym here using the word apples to put them through the apple test. Now we're talking about keeping our words sweet. We're talking about apples of gold. Now some of my daughters and I have this ongoing disagreement about what kind of apple is a good apple. Now their dad enjoys apples that when you bite into them, that lovely sweet flavor makes it clear that that apple is ripe and ready to eat. On the other hand, they enjoy apples that make my face pucker up if I bite, take a bite out of them. So we have this thing, well, what is a good apple? Well, our title verse says a word that is fitly spoken is like apples of gold. So it appears like maybe Solomon agreed with dad on this one. Golden and delicious are the best. Be that as it may, I found this acronym using the word apples, that we can use as a reminder to keep our words sweet. Are my words appropriate? Are they fitting for the occasion? I think we all know what it's like to say something and afterwards regret what we said because it just did not fit. And while some words may not be downright sinful, the question is, is it appropriate? Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things ed- uh, edify not. In other words, if it's not appropriate, it's best left unsaid. Are my words pleasant? I well remember my mother Numerous times, making a comment to me. There's probably a reason why she had to say it numerous times. If you don't have anything nice to say, it's just better to say nothing at all. In other words, are your words pleasant? If not, it may be better to leave them unsaid. I also remember being told that if you have something negative that you feel you need to say about someone, try to think of at least five nice things to say about them as well. Are my words Pleasant. Are my words pure? Now, of course, this has to do with the idea of avoiding that which is vulgar or dirty or immoral, which I think we understand. But it can also have another application. That which is pure has no hidden meanings behind it. You're not saying one thing to give a false impression. You may have heard the story about the man who was selling a horse. Someone came to look at it. The horse was offered at a cheap price, and this man said, Well, your horse is really pretty cheap. Is there anything wrong with it? And the man who was selling it said, Well, you know, you can see it doesn't look good, but other than that, it's a perfect horse. So the man said, Okay, I'll buy it. The seller led it onto the man's trailer, and he took it home. The next day, he came back, and he said, That horse you sold me, it's blind. You said it was nothing wrong with it. The man said, well, I told you, it doesn't look good. <laughs> you see, his words were not pure. It was a hidden meaning there. It was not pure throughout. Are my words pure? Has to do with honesty. Are my words lovely, uplifting, kind, and sweet? Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure. There we have it, pure and lovely. Think on these things. And obviously what you think about is what you speak about. Whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, speak about those things. Are my words encouraging? Do your words build up or do they tear down? Are the words you offer, words that you expect will encourage someone and help to build up their lives and build up their doing. And last of all, are my words soft? When you have something difficult to say, say it as softly as possible. It is possible to say difficult things in a soft way. So this is what I'm referring to as the apple test. Now, I recognize that this is a tall order. And when it applies to speaking, it is a challenge. And perhaps you feel, well, it's impossible for me to not say things that I don't regret. And left up to you, it is impossible. Left up to me, it is impossible. James, in chapter 3, verse 2, says, For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, he is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. And he goes on to say in verse 8, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. But there is hope. I leave you with this verse from Psalm 19, verse 14, as a prayer, a prayer for you to offer as we look to God to control our lips and our words. Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. As we allow God to guard our lips, he is the one who can give us the words that will be apples of gold and perchers of silver. I invite you to kneel with us as we pray. Lord, this morning we thank you again for this passage of Scripture in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and the many words of wisdom, the words of life that we find there, the words of Jesus where he takes us beyond that which we already know to a new level of living, to a new level of accountability. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that the words of our lips, the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable unto you and that our words would be words of beauty that would draw people and draw their minds to you and glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.